0: Welcome to Sound & Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound & Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound & Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join us this summer in New York City or virtually from your home studio in the school's legendary marathons and learn from dedicated artists and to expand as makers. Rigorous and immersive, marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time daily and present a wide range of art-making strategies combined with comprehensive critiques and inspirational discussions. Paradigm-shifting discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies in understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon. Generous, partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company that makes the best artist materials for making that you can get. Over the last 25 years or so, I've been using Golden acrylics, mediums, and materials, and I stand by the quality in their products. They make acrylics that stay wet longer, they dry flat, mediums to make you paint super thick and beautifully fluid. They also make Williamsburg oil paints and core watercolors as well. You can find Golden in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the fine coffee makers at Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has amazing coffee beans that you can order straight to your door. On their website, you can choose from different roasts from different origins, and you can even get a coffee subscription where you can get different beans delivered to your door each week or month. I'm on this subscription plan, and it's amazing. As a coffee fanatic, getting new roasts all the time delivered fresh to the door is amazing. If you get to Seattle, you can even see a 10-foot by 40-foot mural of mine in their 6th and Bell Street shop. Check out Fulcrum Coffee Roasters at fulcrumcoffee.com. Jim Iserman is an artist born in Kenosha, Wisconsin in 1955 who received his Master of Fine Arts from the California Institute of the Arts, and his bachelor's of fine arts from the university of wisconsin in milwaukee jim's work has been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Camden arts center in london the hammer museum in la the institute of contemporary art in philly the mca in chicago the palm springs art museum in california and the risd museum in providence to just name a few He's been included in group exhibitions at numerous institutions, including the LA County Museum of Art in LA, the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art in Denmark, the Moderna Museet in Stockholm, Sweden, the MCA in Chicago, the MCA in Los Angeles, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Royal Academy of Art in London, and the Guggenheim Museum in New York. His work is in the collections of the Art Institute of Chicago, the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, the FRAC. Paul Charente in France, the L.A. County Museum of Art in L.A., the MCA in Chicago, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, just to name a few. He lives and works in Palm Springs, California, and I spoke with Jim about design, utopia, teaching, textures, surface, and much more. Here's our conversation.
1: I actually really enjoyed lecturing um, online because I couldn't tell if anybody was paying attention or not, so I just really would just let loose. But teaching studio art classes on Zoom was a nightmare, so I'm was yeah. very happy to get back into the studio yeah. for that.
0: What classes were you teaching?
1: I was teaching beginning sculpt. I was teaching sculpture classes. <laughs> beginning sculpture. Some are, some
0: are harder than others. <laughs>
1: Yeah, with students making work in their bedroom out of Amazon boxes.
0: All right. Well, which I mean, there's something. I mean, they were probably honestly, um I would imagine, thrilled to be making something or just doing something analog. Yeah. You know, even if it's over video, at least they're just doing something with their hands.
1: Well, the first quarter at the very you know in you know March and April of 2020. They were very engaged because they wanted something to do. Yeah. But the next year, they figured out they could just turn their cameras off and do whatever they wanted.
0: Oh yeah, it wore off, right? And, they were like, yeah, okay,
1: wore off. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, we had to make be the like best a,
1: of it. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I'm was happy to have a job during all of it, so I could not complain.
0: That that's so, true. Yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, I think we had done, or I had done a few over the years before COVID mm-hmm. when I teach at Penn State and we had a pretty good right. like global like infrastructure for video stuff when we needed to and we would occasionally do a Zoom to either you know interview someone or a visiting artist would come over right. Zoom or something so we had a little bit of experience with it but I had some colleagues and some people who were just like they I don't know they just <laughs> the cutoff date <laughs> They were past it, and they were like, nope, this is not doing it. I yeah,
1: no, we definitely had a couple of those. It was it was tricky in the UC system because they were trying to get people to do that asynchronous teaching right. where they recorded their classes, and then they were trying to, you know, uh, the school was trying to own those classes. Oh, and wow. so, it, you know, there was this fear that you were going to be, re- be replaced by your recorded classes. <laughs> right so the re- mean, there's never the a problem with art of yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly so it yeah. never can well, to that
0: lectures I guess would have been great like if you're teaching statistics 101 because those mm-hmm. teachers go up in front of a class of like 800 people anyways and they're just delivering content it's not like they're engaging or anything
1: no exactly I had some friends who taught those classes and they loved it they just recorded it whenever they wanted and you know there was they had no individual i mean i guess they normally didn't have any contact either so
0: yeah but i guess it dangerously when it comes to that that's why i feel like i don't know how you feel about this with technology and you know how like some people freak out about ai and are like yeah it's going to take away you know the need right. for us or whatever creative people are people who do things like the way we do it we're probably the safest i think because if you think yeah. about those courses like you know, if someone does that pre recorded course, they're like, oh, this is easy. This is good. It's like, well, you could kind of be, you know, you're basically like a YouTube video. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, why were people going to want to go pay a gazillion dollars to, you know, to listen to you deliver the same pre recorded lecture right. in front of everyone? Well, right. Probably to hang out at right. parties and everything. But, yes. <laughs> But yeah, when it comes to art classes, you can't replace it I mean it's yeah. it's the organic movement in those rooms which is great
1: right right no I, I agree 100% but I just uh, as of I guess Monday I will be officially retired from teaching
0: whoa congratulations so, thank you it, it either yeah. feels I um, I'll project it <laughs> yeah. either feels like you know this kind of push pull of oh well It'll be nice. My time opens up and stuff, but I will miss that engagement with the students. Either something like that or a gigantic cinder block is lifted off your shoulders.
1: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. I, I, I came to teaching really late, know, it was never part of my plan was to teach. And I, I started teaching because a, a friend's colleague was on sabbatical, and uh, it was actually Charlie Ray talked to me into coming to teach at UCLA 25 years ago. And I, and I had been out of school for 20 years already and thought, I don't know. But I went and did it and found out I liked it. And then a few years later, I lucked into this tenure track job at UC Riverside where they had never had a sculpture program before. So they hired Charles Long and myself and we got to buy the equipment and write the curriculum for this new program, which wow. is an unheard of opportunity in the UC system. So it was really amazing. I actually, the best job in the world, you know, it allowed me to do so many more things in the studio that I didn't have to worry about, you know, because I knew the job was going to pay the rent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it was, you know, but because I came to it late, I felt like, you know, this is definitely a time in my life where I want to be in the studio 100%. Yeah. So it was a really good time to go out It what I think was at the top of my game.
0: Yeah. No, that's great. You know, it's funny. I I had the same thing I covered from one of my old professors when she went on sabbatical and I really enjoyed it. And then Mm -hmm. when a position opened up a couple of years later, you know, a friend was like, Hey, this is open up. You should apply. And I did. And so I took it because I just, I really did love teaching. Like I got a Mm -hmm. lot out of it. I think there's two types of teachers, those who, it robs them of every drop of energy that they have in their life and they it's the bane of their existence but they still do it for a paycheck Mm -hmm. and then there's people who like being around younger people who are like have energy and you know
1: uh it was incredibly generative for me you know especially working with grad students and you know trying to keep up with them and you know talking about what's going on now and um it was yeah and
0: really incredible Yeah. It keeps your cobwebs dusted. I mean, if you're good, (laughs) like if you care.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I didn't want to, you know, I did not want to get to that point. Um, I mean, you see it all the time, people who are just showing up and phoning it in. Yeah. That's a bummer. Yeah. I'd never wanted to get to that point.
0: So. Yeah. I will definitely, you know, pull the ripcord before that happens because there's nothing worse than, you know, like people are there for the energy and they want that and then you just, there's someone coming in just to get a paycheck and just, just like over it, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. depressing. So, yeah. well, that's commendable. It sounds like you had a good run at it.
1: Mm-hmm. 20 years at UC Riverside. So.
0: And I'm sure you had a boat. Lo- well, and then how long was Charles Long there?
1: Well, we've both been there. We were hired the same time. He's staying. Um, so he's, he's a couple of years younger than I am. So um, that's part of it. I, I, you know, this, dovetailed with uh you know meeting social security requirements and everything else yeah so it was uh, it was perfect for me
0: that's great well you must have had some great students roll through there over the years
1: really amazing uh i a couple of them have been showing in new york i don't know if you've seen the work of mark mcknight um i don't know uh, mark mcknight but i will uh he just he shows with klaus gallery in new york um, and David Gilbert, who shows there, and actually David Gilbert and John Bertle who were both students of mine, are in a show right now called Purple Prose. Nice. That's at Marianne Boski. Um, nice. Which is really great. So.
0: So, um, well, let's go back in time. I mean, I, I, I guess I didn't do my, full, <laughs> shit. I didn't do my full research because I don't know where you grew up that was probably really with- easy to find out and for some reason I, when I was like looking at, I've known your work for a long time let's just put it that way and I've been a fan of your okay. work for a long time and uh and the your what you tap into with design and like I mean I'm I'm all in but I guess mm-hmm. I didn't go all the way back to where you grew up which was an oversight so we
1: I actually grew up in Wisconsin and Kenosha, Wisconsin, which now Whoa, happy everyone days. knows. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And Sorry. home of those awful riots a few years ago.
0: Oh, jeez. So, I didn't go there right away. I went to the oh, I went to the old yeah. the old-timey Happy Days.
1: Well, that's Milwaukee, but yeah. So, uh, listen, my computer's buzzing a little bit. Do you think it's picking that up?
0: Uh, it's probably Safe? You mean just the whir of the the yeah. motor? Yeah, it's probably safe. Yeah. Okay. I can I can I, I can pull some levers and make that disappear. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in Wisconsin and went to undergrad in Milwaukee. Um, I guess you somewhat uniquely about it. I grew up in a prairie house. Um, it was not designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, but by one of his you know colleagues. And so it was my grandparents built it, and my parents ended up in it. And that's where I lived for 18 years.
0: Mid-century and, modern?
1: Well, it was built in 22. So Uh-oh. it's, you know, much Art earlier, you know, closer. No, more like a Usonian, like a Frank mm. Lloyd Wright Usonian house. Nice. With overhang roofs and, you know, very clean, organized use of space. And so I grew up thinking the world was organized that way. Right. And it wasn't until I got older and started seeing the way friends lived and, you know, that I realized, you know, the world wasn't organized. Not
0: that everyone way. has good taste.
1: <laughs> well, that is for sure. Yeah, there's plenty, there's plenty, there's there's no shortage of bad
0: taste yeah, right? in the world. Not to go on a yeah. tangent, but in relation, real quick, in relation to what I'm imagining this house is that you grew up in, which is probably very smartly designed and like beautifully, you know, mm-hmm. when I drive around and you see all these houses that are just being built all the time and there's no imagination. There's no design. It's yeah. just a cookie. It's like, doesn't, does no one care? And then you hear stories about like Lautner houses being bought and destroyed or right? does no right. one give a shit anymore about things? Well, it's, well you know, I
1: grew, I mean, River, you see Riverside is, you know, Riverside and San Bernardino counties were the epicenter of the subprime loan thing. And so it was just new track development after new track development yeah. and during the 20 years I drove to school and back, I lived in Palm, I live in Palm Springs oh, most nice. of the time. Yeah, And so I would just see those grow and grow and grow. And, you know, they were such a weird, you know, generic house that's kind of Spanish Mediterranean, you know, but, you know, just like, I guess for those people and for the kids that grow up in those houses, that, you know, signals or signs it's home to them. Yeah. And it's something familiar and, I don't know what, you know, I always found it all really horrifying. And so I always felt that was part of my teaching responsibility was to disabuse them of any of that being, you know, designed or anything like good design.
0: Yeah, and I th- I don't even think it's just the sort of like elitism of like high design or whatever. Like I'd rather see uh, like a Howard Finster house or something, you know, or something with Yeah. That's you know, original or thought that there's some thought into it. It's like now it's like, yeah, whatever. I mean, that big one looks good. That looks like the other 10 that are right in this little complex. I'll get that one. It's like, yeah. man, it is just, I feel like it's all born out of a convenience of like a cookie cutter sort of thing that oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. But, but what they're, what they're imitating is so not worth the effort. Right. Um, you know, I, didn't you know i I, one of the reasons i moved to california was for the architecture and design and i didn't really know what it was and so it's been a you know now 40 plus year process of understanding and constantly learning more and more about it and one of the reasons i ended up in palm springs is it has such a great collection of mid-century architecture and design and i moved out there because i had a chance to buy prefab steel house from 1962 that was designed by um a local architect donald wexler and you know it's it's this utopian idea of a mass-produced house you know made in a factory it arrives in a, a kit of parts that takes it literally took something like four hours to bolt the house together yeah. and so there's a similarity to them all but they're you know they have different slightly different roof lines and it's aspires to such a higher level of achievement than the, you know, houses and developments today. I mean, they might be energy efficient, but they, you know, most of them are just so atrocious to look at.
0: Yeah, I just never understood it. I mean, mean, maybe it's because, I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh, so we had a lot of old, you know, housing Mm -hmm. and, you know, but there was, you know, falling water was nearby. Like there were, Mm -hmm. there was some modern stuff around, you know, there was some some architecture to where if you have some imagination, you know what I mean? You're like, Oh, that's an interesting building, you know? Yeah. But I guess that did that, um, growing up in that environment sort of inform a little bit of, you know, a sensibility you think, or was it just, I think it,
1: I think it absolutely did. I, you know, so much of it was, you know, I, I didn't, it was all, you know, uh, subconscious. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it was just what I knew. And so it was being exposed to things that didn't look like that, that made me realize how unusual it was, and made me seek it out. And then, you know, I went to Cal Arts for grad school. So dropping into Southern California was like a dream come true for me. And it was, you know, there that I started to figure out what these things were. And a lot of it was this just kind of process of elimination and looking at things. And Going to flea markets and swap meets, which was something I started to do as a grad student, and Southern California, especially at that time, flea markets and swap meets and thrift stores were unbelievable. Yeah, you know, in the days before eBay and everything else. Yeah, people.
0: People knew they didn't know exactly what they had sometimes.
1: Yeah, and you know, I started to, you know, devise this theory that um, at the time when things were the least desirable was you know coincided with them coming back into style again and so there's this you know it's all very sped up now but at that time it was a slower process and you knew when people were throwing things away that they were going to be you know somehow influencing the next generation of of design or you know whatever and uh so i became super interested in that and you know for a good 15 20 years i watched that kind of cycle you know, proceed. Yeah. And it's been, you know, very much altered these days. And with the other thing that's really changed the way I think people experience the past is because of the internet. And so like my students, for example, know all this imagery, but they have no context for any of it. Right. So they think of it all very superficially without any reason for why it existed or what came before or after. And they just look at it as this, you know style that they can appropriate yeah it's which like, is it's non-linear interesting. right <laughs> definitely not linear
0: yeah no that's what i mean it's so it you know you used to like watch art progress through decades or like through years and see changes being made and you know when everything is just windows on a screen it makes sense it's not linear you know it's all the mm-hmm. click of a button you could go to that date or that place and right i mean it's in, yeah. in a way it's kind of interesting that that it's a real collage like it, it, i'm sure it frees people up so they don't feel so um i don't know hamstrung by you know art history you know what i mean like when i was post-modernism like when i was in school there was like this feeling of like well you came after this and that came after that so there's only one way like right And now i think people are like screw it i'll just i like figuration you know I like working loosey-goosey with the figure and throwing in, you know, computers or something. I don't know. They just, they don't care. It is not, and same with music. I think music has done that too, where people feel freer to just grab from genres and merge them together in a way.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, if there was one reason for me to get out of teaching was to make room for somebody who, that is their first language. Right. Um, I think somebody that, like that needs to be in our program, so that students aren't being told what they're doing is wrong because it's it, that's not the issue. It's just you know figuring out how to communicate with that you know set of hieroglyphics. Yeah, so
0: it's different and it changes so much more rapid than it used to. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, um, definitely. well, so w- did your were your parents creative? Did they do creative things?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, my mother was extremely pragmatic, which I, you know, I think it's something, and she grew up in Nebraska, mm-hmm. and um, my favorite story about her is, you know, this house was kind of amazing because it had all this wood trim, and each room basically had three colors of wall paint. So there was, the walls were one color, there was this kind of border between wood that was a, a second color, and then the ceiling was a third color. And so every few years, you know, we would all... The, help her repaint the house and then at the end of you know painting the rooms that needed to be painted we'd take all the leftover paint and mix them together and then that was the color we painted the hallway down to the basement <laughs> and so <laughs> I just I remember that so clearly as such a practical thing to do
0: it really and, is it's like local yeah. color it, it resonates yeah. with the rest of the house but it's we're using all the scraps
1: <laughs> yeah and so it's, I have always felt this need to be very economical. Yeah. I mean, for 40 years, I've been doing 48 by 48 inch paintings, because initially when I was making the panels for them, I was cutting a four by eight sheet in half. And the idea of making an, an asymmetrical size and throwing away a scrap was anathema to me. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I have made subtle changes since then. Actually, the show that's up right now at McHenry is those are the only ten paintings I've done that are not forty-eight by forty-eight inches? Wow! And it had to do with using a different substrate, where that wasn't you know necessary. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. but and so the the pattern determined what the the slight off squareness they are.
0: They feel weird. I would imagine if you've only ever worked at that one scale,
1: it's it was very strange. And but most people don't see it because they're so close to being squares. Yeah. But I couldn't push the. I couldn't. You know, the pattern was not collapsible any further, and so they had to be the sizes that they are.
0: Right. So. So well, when like in, you know, you when you're in high school, I mean, were you always a drawer? Were you always building? The, like, when did when did you start using your hands in a creative way, or when did creativity take on a little more of a role in things?
1: I think I wanted to be you know, I wanted to be an artist, but I didn't know what that meant. You know, I had an older sister who was uh, studying art in college, and so she was a bit of an inspiration. But it wasn't until I went away to school and started taking art classes. And, you know, I mean, honestly, I had, I guess I had one professor when I was an undergrad who was a working artist who was exhibiting in in New York, and he was incredibly inspirational. But it wasn't until I went to CalArts that I actually had you know, actual artists teaching the classes. And at the time I went to Cal arts, almost everyone teaching there was from New York. Yeah, And so it was almost, it would have been almost easier to move to New York than to stay in LA. Uh, but you know, I, I went to New York in the summer of 1980 and after three months I was, every night I was dreaming about driving my car <laughs> and I felt, you know, living in New York penniless, uh, I was 25, the idea, it was, I just thought I'd go back to where, you know, I could have a full-size bathroom, yeah. and, you know, um, and I never looked back, and then, you know, established myself in L.A., and I was among the first and second generation of students from that program who decided to set up shop in L.A., and so the early 80s in Los Angeles were like the Wild West for... You know galleries and young artists i mean it's a huge different world now right um but at that time it was very tiny and everybody was involved with everybody else and it was a very different sense of community
0: yeah i can imagine well i imagine too that new york in the 80s early 80s a little little rustic
1: Well, it was pretty. It was pretty wild in New York. You know, it was the. You know, it was during the East Village and all of that. And so there was there was a lot going on. And you know, if I had stuck it out, uh, I'm sure I would have been fine. But it, it it was. I needed, you know, something about the wide open spaces of of the West Coast to allow me to think.
0: Yeah, and a slight weather upgrade. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> Wisconsin is, you know, the winters you know oh, yeah. i definitely brisk.
1: had i had more than enough snow growing up yeah. so I'm to really last you to for a,
0: yeah yeah right it's yeah. like the as the years go by i get less and less interested and in, although it seems like as the year goes by the years go by it's less and less snow <laughs> it's like we're gradually yeah, climbing because i remember as a kid in pittsburgh you know we'd have these blizzards just like you know two foot of snow and jumping off the mm-hmm. the roof of the the patio down into the like a snowbank, and these days I feel like we just don't get that crazy amount of snow anymore. But um, yeah. But yeah, you can settle into L.A. weather pretty quickly, I imagine, and uh, the, the architecture and the. It was school? I mean, undergrad. Well, and how did you know Cal Arts for undergrads? And I like you Google it. One of your professors told you, or one of your teachers in uh, high school.
2: Well,
1: I. It was. It was actually funny. One somebody. And for the life of me, I cannot remember their name. But they had been involved with KellArts at the early it, in the early days, and they ended up coming to UW Milwaukee, where I was an undergrad, to become to take over that program. Mm-hmm. And it was my I, I guess I must have been a my a senior in the undergrad program at the time. And he was singing the praises of CalArts. Arts, and, um, but I you know I was one of the people who went there who didn't really know who any of those people were who were teaching there. Yeah. Um, you know, so I went there and worked with John Baldessari and Borowski and Michael Asher and these people without knowing a thing about them. And I, you know, really connected with uh, Doug Hubler. But then the visiting people were the ones that I really connected with. So via Selman's taught when I was there. Barbara Kruger taught there in 1979-80. Um, Nancy Dwyer. Um, and uh, it was incredible. I just felt, you know... Like I had you know permission to explore all the things I was interested in because it was everything was so based on ideas there was really no separate programs for painting and drawing um you know they invented the term post studio so there was all this you know as a grad student, you could choose an office or a studio depending on you know what kind of space right. you wanted to work in yeah. and as a grad student there, I read. Uh, Susan Sontag's notes on camp for the very first time mm-hmm. and that changed my life and you know gave me permission to you know really ex- you know ex- mine all everything that had to do with culture and you know subversely uh, with you know uh, the relationship to gay culture as well yeah, and so that was you know the beginning of of me starting to explore all that
0: so yeah, well, how was where in like, what is the the sort of perception of camp at that moment? Because we're talking early 80s, right? Yeah. So, you know, this is when Warhol is starting to be, you know, old news at that point, right? Like, there was a backlash against Warhol, and it's, you know, and Warhol tapped into camp. I mean, it was, I don't know if it was...
1: Oh, absolutely he did, and... You know, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of, you know, I, I was a grad student when um, the, the first appropriation artists were getting a lot of attention and um, the pictures generation, right? Yeah. So those were the, the people we were all looking at as grad students. And there certainly was a relationship to this idea of reappropriating images that wasn't that different from th- this Warhol's camp idea of taking you know, leftovers from this, you know, the scrap heap of pop culture and recontextualizing them and investing them with a new kind of meaning. And so, you know, a lot of artists were doing that, Um, maybe not using the word camp, but, you know, even people like David Sally, you know, taking imagery from all these disparate sources and putting them together and, you know, screwing up part of an Eames chair onto the canvas. You know, those were, you know, not very far from those ideas right so and even you know someone like cindy sherman like making all of those uh film stills that were based very much on you know kind of camp imagery
0: yeah so was the um the environment at cal arts at that time sort of supportive and explore i mean it was i would imagine it's pretty rigorous but i don't know maybe it was with the wild west and kind of open and you know explore conceptuality in, in relation to making and you know go at it or
1: I think it was a, a lot more open during the time I was there. Um, Judy Pfaff taught there as well when I was there and so there were people making things but the most of the other grad students were not making a lot of objects yeah there are a lot of people making videos and photography and and I you know much more heavily conceptual or idea based things right. so there were few fewer people exploring you know objects and and how they could fit into that but one i mean uh b Wirtz was in grad school with me oh, wow. and he's he's he we were he is the he and his wife were both grad students there and they are my two closest friends you know that we, and we've stayed friends you know for now 45 years mm-hmm. and so it's kind of amazing i mean i'm so happy for for B and the attention his work has finally gotten over the last five or 10 years. And um, so, you know, we've had this, you know, you know, 40 plus year of conversation about these types of ideas. Right. Um, But it was, you know, the, you know, the conceptual people were very supportive of what I was doing. And it really pushed me to, when I got out of grad school to be very, aware of the gallery situations i was putting my work in because my work really you know sat on this line between design and decoration and i i always wanted it to be seen in a more conceptual context so the galleries i showed with with for the first 20 30 years of my of my career were very much based that way so the work was never i hope never mistaken as pure decoration that there was always this kind of you know embrace of decoration um, but in this in this funny way there's there's this really great definition of camp that guy Branham has of something pretending to be what it already is right and so that's how I like to think of a lot of that work is it was it was you know decoration masquerading as painting, you know pretending to be painting. You know, it's never ever not a work of art but it looks like this other thing yeah so
0: what was the what was your work like in graduate school like what were you making
1: um i was making these very decorative wall plaques like painted shapes that screwed together that you could hang above a sofa mm-hmm. and the last year i was there i made a a furniture ensemble with combining you know found pieces of thrift store furniture that i you know reupholstered or rehabilitated in some way and then uh wall works that went with it and so my last year i did a an ensemble of these things and photographed it and i guess in a nod to the kind of conceptual classes i was required to take the work actually existed as a postcard and not as this other thing but you know afterwards they were all broken up as individual objects and so when I first got out of school, I was making all kinds of furniture and objects and thinking of them as ensembles ensembles or tableaus or you know things that you know you know belong somewhere else. So, you know, one of the first shows I did in '82 was in a motel room across the street from Disneyland. So I made all of the furniture that you would expect to find in a motel room, and it was open for a long weekend and then it was reconfigured in the gallery in the same configuration. And so most people got to see it both places. And after doing a couple shows like that, I became less interested in turning the gallery into another space and trying to do things that functioned, you know, in a particular space. So I did a gallery show where all the furniture functioned as gallery furniture. So I made a circular seating arrangement where you sat on that to look at the paintings on the wall right and there were paintings but they were thought of and conceived of as this all as this installation and around the same time I did two video screening rooms where you just came in and sat down and watched the video and didn't think about the fact that I had made it right and um, I also was around that time I became super interested in the work of scott burton so you know he was a real early hero of mine and you know his ideas about the work not there was no way to for him there was no way to understand his work if the utility was removed from it so he really wanted you to be able to sit on it or at it and have that experience as well right so that was
0: super helpful for me it's it's funny sometimes the people you show with in a gallery Exposes mm-hmm. you to work on a deeper level than you might have had if you just saw that show somewhere else. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when I first started showing in New York at Protech, he had represented Scott Burton. So oh my God, yes. I had a uh-huh. much deeper understanding and relationship. Whereas I think if I didn't have that insight or that deeper sort of connection, mm-hmm. I might have been like, oh yeah, I get it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know if I would have really grasped it. But irregardless right. of aesthetics, who were the people working at that time when you did that show, the Disneyland? You know, that's that sort of like conceptually sort of turned you on or like you were really in, in, interested in the way that they were subverting the way one experiences artwork because there's so many different ways it's happening at that point because I feel like that's really, there was wow. a really a moment there where there was a lot of breakout different experiences, whether it's like Baldessari or you know McCarthy I mean there's so many different people doing so many different things at Conchi you know and right just curious as to like what you were really tapped into
1: wow that's interesting I've never been asked that question um uh you know you know I was I was you know well the art world was so tiny then you know I lived across the alley from Mike Kelly and so we were close friends and my first job out of grad school was working at LACE, which was Los Angeles Contemporary Exhibitions, mm-hmm. which at that time was a three-person operation working out of this warehouse in downtown LA. And it was one of the few places in LA where young artists showed. So, so many people showed there. I mean, they, LACE put on most of Mike's early performances. Paul McCarthy did an installation there. Um, Bruce, Yano, Bruce and Norman Yanomoto showed work there there was a lot of people um and you know we even showed we did a they, we did a east village show there where jeff koons you know stack of vacuum cleaners and plexiglass boxes were shown and so i feel like there were a, for me a lot of these ideas seem very much generational you know and i would see different people whose work i thought oh i totally get this like joel um uh um,
2: <laughs>
1: joel otter otter no, not otterson wait
0: Otterness. yeah uh,
1: no the the one who makes the furniture it's based now he's based in la
0: why am i otternis <laughs> is
1: the makes the, the tom Otterness is the one who does the tom Otterness. i'm thinking silly... of joel otterson
0: otterson okay. yeah, yeah. So, i don't know joel um, otterson i embarrassed oh you I
1: probably don't. recognize his work um it's great well there's that it's funny that maybe remember that photograph of the headshots that I think it was uh, David Robbins did. Mm-hmm. Those, um, and Joel's in one of those pictures okay. and, um, and Cindy Sherman and Larry Johnson from LA and Larry Longo Johnson. and all these people. So, um, so there were, you know, I feel like um, there was something that was going through all of that work, but I also felt like I really had, at that time, I very much had tunnel vision about what it was I was doing. I had very, you know, closed ideas about what I was interested in exploring. And it's one of the things um, about later in life when I looked much more closely at what Scott Burton was doing, I was so impressed that he was able to, you know, work with so many different styles of vernacular furniture and embrace them all and, you know, look at these different kind of design tropes. Whereas I had such singular vision about how things moved. And um, as I started to figure out the furniture aspect of it, then I just started to explore different materials. Because the the one complication with a lot of the early work is that I felt it was misunderstood as, as that it was somehow about a celebration of bad taste. And I never... F- I never thought any of the things I was making were ugly. I would felt like I very much embraced these different aesthetics. And I also didn't think, I also thought they were things that could only have been made, you know, 20 or whatever years after what it was I was interested in. They were not something that was retro in the, in the way things are retro today. Right. You know, it's not about recreating the past. It's about looking the pa- at the past through this other lens. And um, so it's, it's, it's funny, I don't know, if you, have you read Cruising Utopia?
0: No, I haven't.
1: It's a really great book, and it's, it's um, uh, written by Munoz, and it's, it's all about uh, queer futurity, but mm-hmm. it's about looking at the past to understand the present and to be moving towards this, this future utopia that is never attainable. Because as soon as the future is the present, it's not what you want, and, right. it's, and it's it's this amazing. I mean, the book is really incredible. But it, wh- I just read it a couple of years ago with this queer book club, and that we started during the pandemic. Actually, myself and a grad student and a couple ex grads started this four person book club, and that was the first book we read. And at the time, I thought, oh, I wish I had read. You know, I, I mean, this book didn't exist when I was a grad student, but it was the. It's almost a guidebook to the way i was looking at i mean not for the same results but in terms of looking at the past to understand the present and to be moving this thing forward and you know i used to talk so much about utopia and to understand it as this unachievable thing was just incredibly helpful
0: yeah i I went through a, a quite a phase of, like, um, investigating utopia and dystopia and the aesthetics mm-hmm. of, you know, going back from, like, the Bauhaus and this sort of idealism of what the future is going right. to bring. It's going to set everyone free, and it's also going to be beautifully designed. and Yeah. Yeah, we just sort of took a left turn at Albuquerque, as Bugs Bunny would say. I think it didn't go exactly, <laughs> and it never does, you know, but it's really, the one thing that's really compelling is when you've been around long enough to where you see movies like blade runner or like these sort of projected sci-fi movies and then elements of those are sort of manifested, you know, it's different, but there's a core idea there of like, well, it could go here, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's starting to go that way, which is really interesting.
1: Yeah. I, well, I, I, I'm, (laughs) I guess I'm so worried about, um, VR and now what they're calling augmented reality mm-hmm. that that is somehow going to you know replace the horrible world we live in like we're going to have this artificial reality versus and meanwhile we're in this crumbling infrastructure
0: Are we kind of there now so, though Isn't everyone on their phones and that's basically the augmented reality of how we're living our normal day-to-day lives
1: Well I I I suppose you I suppose that's true but it's not it's. I guess it's not my desire for the future. Oh yeah, so, we're not getting um, we're
0: not getting our desire. Yeah. No, <laughs> <laughs> we're humans. We're gonna blow this yeah. thing up. It's like our nature. We can't help it. You know what I mean? We're just yeah. gonna we're gonna take ourselves out. But you know, it's
1: well. It's almost like I, have you heard that question? I mean, I've heard it as like a first date question. But it's a funny thing we were talking about in my design class. This this question about if you had your choice about living in a beautifully designed house, but your view is of a really horrible house, or living in a really horrible house with a view of a very beautiful house, um, which house would you choose to live in?
0: Jeez, that a I've never heard that before, uh, and b okay. what an awful question. That's it's almost like, <laughs> do you? I mean. Both are a kick in the nuts, I think. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's like you, but that's life But actually, the irony of that question as being something that you could hypothetically choose between is that we right. are always confronted with a duality in life, no matter what. It's never yeah. one or the other. So you're basically teasing the human that you're asking that question because you can never have all or all both. You know what I mean? So you're kind of saying, which kind of pile of crap do you want to deal? with?
1: <laughs> well yeah it's it's a funny it's it i was re-watch, re-watching girls a couple months ago with my boyfriend and that there's a there's an episode with that in it where uh it's it's the two people meet this third person and this question comes up and it becomes it sparks this relationship between two people and i didn't realize that this was a thing and a number of, you know a number of people were very familiar with this but i'd never heard this question before either and there's there is a right answer to it so which I found equally you know uh confusing but
0: I, I would uh, am I supposed to answer that question because I will well, if it... yeah go ahead <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking about I mean I guess I would choose the view because then you could just go outside yeah I've that's oft lived in shitty and <laughs> shitty apartments so I mean it's kind of been you know in good places like I mean I live in New York City that question right. is kind of a a metaphor for living in this city. I mean, I go broke to live in a place that like when I walk outside, it's like a dump, you know what I mean? But there's an amazing, like I have a view of the city from my apartment and there's an amazing culture Mm -hmm. and, but, but it, there's also the, the crap side of it too, you know? Right. I mean, I could just go live in the country and have a beautiful house for what I pay here, you know what I mean? And and have a beautiful view and just be bored. But have a yeah. beautiful view, and I'm getting closer to moving that. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? Like I'm, I'm almost yeah. to here with with the city and with all that stuff. So I I might mm-hmm. flip that question at some point.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the other answer is supposedly the correct answer. Whoops. Like you're always you're always supposed to choose your environment over you know your view of it. So
0: oh right, the reality of of what you're yeah.
1: At. But it's funny, um, in Palm Springs, this prefab house I have, is is, there's a kind of S-curve of these houses, and I'm in the last one, so I actually have a view of the type of house I live in. Mm -hmm. So I have, I've got them both, unbelievably. Stop bragging.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, but I do, I think there's truth to that, but I also think that um, the outside, the view is also our environment as well you know what i mean even yeah. though you're not walking around literally in it necessarily mm-hmm. but you know i guess yeah. it's 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 almost like looking right in front of you or looking further ahead you know what i mean and different people right. have different sensibilities i guess yeah um were you this is a total tangent did you were yeah. you into uh archwager did you like his work
1: oh love archwager just popped um, into my
0: head but earlier when you were talking about the furniture stuff
1: Oh my god! Yeah, crazy. It's so silly, you know. Because of the pandemic and everything else, it had been, it had been, uh, I guess, nine years since I've shown in New York. And so when I was in New York for my opening, I went to the New Whitney for the first time.
0: Oh yeah, the elevens. And
1: oh my god, yeah. I didn't know that that they had done that. And when I when, I went into the best one first, which I think is the one where you're under the table. And I was dying. I thought it, I didn't know. I thought, how did they do this? And I did, And so I saw the tag, and the elevator hit my the elevator doors closed on me while I was trying to look at the the identification tag. And then I, of course, had to ride every elevator and look
0: at them all. Pretty great, and right? Amazing. And those yeah, are no, big, uh, honking elevators too. They're not, It's not like a yeah, your garden variety I mean, elevator. I mean, they're they're big.
1: No, I think that was just really incredible. So I was very pleased to do that. Yeah, no, I was. I'm a huge fan of his work. Yeah. I always talk about him whenever I have a chance.
0: I mean, every once yeah. in a while, museums get something right, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. even a blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, it's funny when I was first teaching, I found a design encyclopedia in a thrift store, and I, I it was nothing, so I bought it and brought it home for the for the lab, and they had one of Archwager's early functional pieces from before he became an artist in this book and it's the only time i've ever seen an image of one and it was this display of all kinds of famous pieces of furniture and design and there was a buffet that he had designed and it was credited to him
0: and i was i couldn't believe it that's really cool when you find things like that in the wild when you're not expecting Mm -hmm. it or you know see images of it it's always amazing i went to a house to uh, possibly renting a house where I teach in Pennsylvania. And I went inside. And it was, it was kind of like Japanese theme and it was Nakashima mm. furniture throughout like original. Oh my God. And I almost grabbed my pen. I was like, and I said, is this Nakashima? And the, cause you know, you could tell. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, it's the architect who designed this building was a mid century modern guy from California. it's the only one they did in Pennsylvania. And he did it because the architecture, I had an architecture program at the school at that time commissioned him to do it. I think his name wow. was George On or something. I don't know. But anyways, the house was amazing, but the the Nakashima was like and then like I it turned out I think that they were gonna just have like masters, like grad students or PhD students rent out that I'm like with the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that's that's
0: very amazing. But I feel like that's yeah. kind of stuff doesn't happen much anymore. All right. Side question to your development here as an artist, because I want to get into the after post grad school, like developing through that. Mm-hmm. But what's the music lineage? I mean, what did you grow up? Did was there music in the house? Was it always important to you? What's the role of music in your life?
1: Uh, music has always been super important. Um, my parents had like five records, you know, a couple soundtracks and Lawrence Welk records. But luckily, I had uh, three. Two older brothers and an older sister that'll do it and so uh i grew up you know listening to uh the beatles and you know i mean all, all the pop music from the 60s yeah and but when i was in so i was in an undergrad in the you know mid 70s and so i was mostly listening to a lot of 60s music at the time but i was also Through a roommate I had at the time was listening to the earliest, you know, punk music, listening to Patti Smith and Blondie and the Ramones, all very early for them. Yeah. And I remember we all ran to Summerfest, the, the Lakefront Music Festival in Milwaukee, to see the Ramones play on a beer stage in 1977. Nice. And, you know, so there was like, you know, 20 people there and it was unbelievable. So, um, that stuff was super, you know, that early, the more pop punk side, the more pop side of punk that was more influenced by the sixties was, was what I, you know, absolutely loved. And then in grad school, you know, the art scene was the music, the Mocha hadn't opened in LA yet. And so the music scene was much more dominant. Yeah. And so we would go and see X and the Go-Go's and all the oh, you, local.
0: The germs. Bands. Did you go see, uh, did you ever see the germs?
1: <laughs> I never saw the germs. Um, I'm, I saw the bags. I saw suburban lawns, um, you know, some of those more obscure LA bands, yeah. but, um, I remember seeing Gary Valentine, but, you know, as part of our visiting artist program at CalArts, arts, we, Got X to come and play a set in the afternoon. Nice. And we paid them, you know, the artist fee, and they set up and played in a classroom in the afternoon.
0: That's pretty (laughs) cool.
1: Answered questions. (laughs) So that was (laughs) that was pretty fun. I mean, that stuff was kind of before
0: Um, my time, and when I got to punk music, it was you know a sort of later iteration of it. But uh, Uh, I remember I was in a band, and we were recording at Steve Albini's studio in Chicago and they, mm-hmm. he had like a tv and they were playing uh, decline of western civilization right and right. watching the germs play lot i was just like what the f-? like what in gg allen and you know it was just yeah. like kind of like watching a train crash you know but mm-hmm. really compelling like such a you know i mean it's a subculture of music but it it seemed like the energy of that stuff it was so specific and you know and mm-hmm. if you think about you know sonic youth and I mean, I could tie all that Mike Kelly and tie all those things together. Right, that lineage, yeah. Pettibone, and like you don't get that stuff if you don't have that stuff.
1: Right, right. Yeah, no, it was, it was. I mean, everybody was super involved in the music scene, and you know, we all had friends who were in, in local bands, and none of them that became a band, a band well, well enough known that you would have heard of them. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was, it was everything.
0: Yeah, well, L.A. Yeah. was just. I mean, well, always, but, you know, that yeah. time, it just seemed like it was probably a powder keg of, you know, live music and just mm-hmm. that kind of a raw expression. And so many yeah. different ideas at that point, too, because, like, you're getting a little bit of pluralism entering the fold into everything. So, you know, things are starting but... to get kind of, like, I don't know, interesting. I would imagine it was mm-hmm. a very uh, energetic there was an energetic pulse to the creative community there. You know, wow. Well, and those are your formative years. Well,
1: it was so easy to go see music then, too, because they were all playing at really small venues. And, you know, it was... You, I mean, that's just what you did. There were no openings to go to. Yeah. And then slowly, the art world replaced music as what you did on the weekends. Right. So, yeah.
0: So, yeah, um, we always ruined everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah joking um so wh- yeah and when you 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 mentioned not only like when showing right out of school it sounds like but mm-hmm. and then wanting to identify the the places you show to give the context which is really interesting because it's almost like a record label in a way like you know a gallery can be kind of like contextualize the work in a way that a record label could cuz you could have mm-hmm. you know a, a a slightly less punk band that's a little more softer or emotional or and then you put it out on you know kill rock stars and it's going to feel totally different you know so yeah Yeah. how did you navigate that world and what how many galleries were there at that point what was the scene like
1: i mean there were no galleries i mean there was uh lace where everyone seemed to have their first show there was rico mizuno who had been this legendary gallery who had at that point had moved from uh, West Hollywood to downtown to Little Tokyo, and she gave lots of artists their first show. Mike Kelly had his first show there. I had my first show at Rico Space. I've never even heard um, of
0: it. Um, well, admittedly, I I haven't experienced a lot of LA stuff in my life.
1: Well, she, uh, yeah, I mean, all this would have been gone, but she she had the space on um, San Vicente where Roseman Felson had took over her space. Mm-hmm. And so, I forget, one of the artists had a hand in designing it, but Roseman Felsen took that over, and Roseman Felsen was where a lot of people showed. <laughs> I I never showed with Roseman, but I showed with, I did a show with Rico, and then I showed with Richard Kulenschmidt. I was his very first show, and Richard was showing a bunch of LA people, but he was also showing a ton of New York people, so Barbara Bloom and Richard Prince, and all these people did their first LA shows with Richard Kulenschmidt. And it was in the basement of the Los Altos hotel, which was on Wilshire and near Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and then I ended up showing with Richard Tass for 25 years and had a really great program. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, New York, I, I started out, I did a couple shows. Like I did a show at artist space in the eighties. I I did a show with Josh bear and his short lived space. But then I had been joined with Feature in Chicago, so when Hudson moved Feature to New York, I showed with him for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so I had a lot of really long-term relationships with galleries yeah. uh, with Tomaso Corvimora in London. And it's really only been in the last 15 years that I've been working with you know different people trying to find that you know right home in New York. right so. You know, I did a couple of projects with Jeffrey Deitch. I did a couple of shows with Mary Boone. And I feel like I finally found my home with Miles. So I'm hoping, I'm looking forward to a, a long relationship with him.
0: Yeah, yeah. It um, so, seems like it's changed so much from those early days. And that yeah. I remember being in grad school in the late 90s and that whole L.A., wave of like young sculptors and you know and painters were coming out and it and it was really interesting because it seemed like such a different aesthetic and idea and all that that stuff was being born out of like you know I would imagine those professors like Baldessari and people like you said like all those people out there who were you know um, yeah
1: well yeah it's it's wild because so you know when I was at Kell Arts this was 78 79 um of course, CalArts looked down on all the other grad programs at that time. And, you know, some of them had good people. But oddly, what happened in the 80s, a lot of people who were trained at CalArts started teaching at these schools. So, like, you know, Mike Kelly and a bunch of people were teaching at Art Center. And other Charlie Ray came in and was teaching at UCLA. And um, in, in throughout the 80s and early 90s, all of the grad schools kind of took off. Yeah. And so it seems... I mean, it seems to have the largest, you know, number of really good art programs in one city that I know of. So they're all really great. And the grad students in all these programs seem to be all super connected now. They're, they don't seem to be separate, you know, totally separate programs. So I look at my grad students, you know, they seem to know everybody in the other grad programs. Right. And when they graduate and they're all in L.A., there's a sense of community that's so different from, you know, When I was just out of
0: school, yeah, but there seems to be a perception that in LA is probably outdated or not even true. But from the East Coast, that you know, if you do want to go out to LA, then you you kind of you don't have to. But there was this idea like, well, you got to go to one of these schools because that's where you're going to meet the community because everything's spread out, and it's not like New York where you just rub elbows with people. It's like you you drive. And you can see yeah. one opening or two openings a night. And, and, you know, it's not quite as, you know.
1: That's that's definitely how it used to be. But I think it has really changed.
0: Internet? Um, I, <laughs> I'm sure that changes I, I a guess, bit. I,
1: you know, and just traffic. I mean, people don't leave their neighborhoods anymore. Yeah. So, um, you know, schools definitely used to be the the social epicenters. But I think it's really changed. Um, the other thing that's really different, when I was first out of school, because there wasn't quite the spotlight on what it was you were doing. I mean, people got attention, you know, critical attention. You know, most people didn't have a lot of sales. And because there wasn't that spotlight or demand, there was a, you had a lot more room to breathe and let the work develop on their own because there, there rarely was a demand for a particular thing you were doing. Right. So in my case, for example, I, I found it very easy to, for the work to change and use different materials and explore a lot of different ways of putting things together that I might not have been able to do in a you know in more of a spotlight. Yeah. So.
0: Well, you and you, you know, it sounds like when you were in school, maybe you were working with in a in a certain way, but over the course of your career, I mean, you've you've made large scale wall installation like. You've done so many, worked in so many different ways and scales, you know what I mean? That, Mm -hmm. I mean, was that an organic process, or did one thing lead to another, or was it opportunities to collaborate or work with fabric? Like, how did all that come about?
1: Um, I mean, the first 20 years were really baby steps from one thing to the next, where I would exhaust an idea that would lead to the next material or a way of putting something together, and then suddenly I finally got some opportunities to do some you know, public projects and um, you know, it's there's kind of a catch twenty-two to doing those large scale projects is nobody's gonna give you a half a million dollars unless you've proven you can handle it. Yeah. And so I got this amazing opportunity. I mean it took five years. I think I think we started it in ninety nine, but I did a project for UCSF in San Francisco, and the people. one of the people running the program was Mary Beebe, who came from the Stewart Collection at UCSD, and so the way they do it there is they invite artists to pick a site and to propose something, and if they like it, they figure out how to make it happen. And so that's what they did, they, the campus was being built from the ground up, uh, and they had, uh, you know, I went for a long weekend with like 14 or 15 artists, and we toured everything, looked at the plans, and we were all invited to propose whatever it was we wanted to do in whatever site we wanted to, and I proposed something, and they said, yeah, we're going to make it happen Uh, five years, and $600,000 later, it happened, and that was a huge, you know, point for me to then jump on to getting more and more of these large-scale projects
0: cuz people and. see the the result of it and that you've gone through the that what seems to be cuz I have a lot of friends who have done you know large scale I mean I've done mm-hmm. some public pieces but nothing to the point of like some of these things are ginormous and the bureaucracy yeah. and you know paperwork oh. and red tape is just you know oh it's just it's amazing <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's almost like a test and it's like well if you're in that club if you can make it happen then there's probably a real confidence in people being like well he did that, you know, yeah. so.
1: Well, I did some really large ones that were very inexpensive as well. You know, I did a giant piece for the D- Dallas Cowboys. You know, they, I don't know if it's you've stadium. ever been to the, yeah, that stadium piece was really fun. And, um, you know, we did it on a shoestring, but it was this, the piece is 40 feet tall and a hundred feet wide. Yeah. And, you know, it was really a fantastic opportunity to do something like that. Isn't
0: that an incredible, like roster of people for a sports venue?
1: It's wild. It's just wild. Um, and then they, you know, before they had any games there, they had a reception that all the artists were there. I mean, I couldn't believe that everyone came. It's cool. And so I met all these kinds of luminaries from the art world, and it was, you know, you know, it's one of those kind of things you dream about. Yeah. So, I, and here we are at the Dallas Cowboys.
0: <laughs> it's so rare, so, I feel like. Yeah. Because, I mean, I'm a huge sports fan, and, you know... I soccer is huge for me and um you know i i often um love when when in those rare occasions where like art and sports combine because i feel like there's a lot of similarities <laughs> That's pretty between, rare. yeah it yeah. is rare but there is there are a lot of similarities to the practice part of it and this dedication i don't know there's creativity and all mm-hmm. that stuff but whenever they merge like that it's such a cool thing to see and you you would and such a great venue for people to see that stuff in, you know. Right. That, right. And yeah, it's really it's impressive, you know, that they were able to do that.
1: It is. And it's it's kind of my favorite location where people will see it on multiple occasions. Yeah. So they might not get it the first time, they might just walk by, but maybe the second or third time they understand a little bit more about how it it's working and how the repetition works or in case of somebody else's work, they might stop and actually read it. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's it was it was really kind of an incredible opportunity and achievement. So, yeah, so those
0: you know larger scale sort of public projects, does that sort of inform you know your the the future the things that you were doing in galleries and the way you're making other work, or is it kind of like that's a separate deal? And then, I, you know.
1: Well, it was funny. When I first started doing them, I thought, oh, I never have to do another gallery show. I thought, this, this is it. <laughs> this is the future. You know, I'm, cu- I'm cutting out the middleman. and um, But I quickly realized that it was the attention of the gallery shows that helped make those things happen. Right. You know, because they just don't get the same kind of press, or they don't get reviewed in the same way. The coverage is very different. You know, they might be in the style section instead of the art section. Yeah. But, um, and so I actually ended up making twice as much work for myself, but um, they, they both influenced each other, you know, so I was, I started to go back and forth between them very fluently. And even to the point where I did a couple of gallery shows where I used, um, you know, more industrial manufacturing techniques yeah. for sculptures. So I did a show of roto molded polyethylene sculptures after having used that as
0: for a public work. So, when you have um, ideas for things like that, is it are you sketching them out analog? Do you use the computer? Do you render things? Like, What's the process like?
1: I'm super analog. I, I've been drawing on graph paper for 30 years, and I also make models all the time. And so right now I'm, I'm in Northern California. Palm Springs is a little too hot for me this time of year. It yeah. was 100, 112 this weekend. Jeez. So, um, so I, I bought this cabin up here about 12 years ago. And uh, so when I'm up here, I don't, off, I don't usually have enough time to paint. So I, when I'm up, up here, I'm drawing and making models. Like I'll, I'll make models for ideas that I have. And so at this point, I have kind of an inventory of things I would like to do, yeah. given the right opportunity. So it's one of the ways I, you know, I'm, I'm never that kind of last-minute person in terms of finishing. You know, my paintings are never drying in the gallery. Right. You know, and so this is, I like to be prepared.
0: Yeah, I always hear those stories and like, <laughs> man, how can you, you know what I mean? How can you yeah. do that? Like, I have to have things done, you know, in advance. Well, in, and yeah. I, the thing is, is like, like a catalog's a great impetus for that because, you know, they're usually mm-hmm. like, well, we got to photograph these things, you know, a few months before the show. So you got to be done with it. But yeah, some those people are like last minute cramming. I just can't do it. Oh.
1: Yeah, no way.
0: Too much stress and anxiety. I uh, that's also a luxury that the uh working in different places and then being able to adapt your ideas and your decision making and you know into different zones of working I found has been really great for me because it kind of kills a little bit of stasis or monotony of like you know if you just go to that one studio all the time and that's where you make your work and when you leave it's nothing else you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah no well i mean just coming driving 500 miles and coming from the desert to you know the forest is also this kind of great you know way of you know washing out my head and you know looking at the landscape here you know i forget how different it is and how beautiful it is and because it, this year it was such a rainy winter, it's, everything's really spectacular up here. I just got up here two weeks ago, Yeah. and it's, it feels fantastic.
0: I'm sure it's very green, bucolic.
1: Very green, well, yeah.
0: And, and you've kind of, you know, in thinking about your situation growing up, the aesthetic of that, where you've gone, you've, you've sort of like carved out these paths of locations that resonate with an aesthetic that you're interested in but how much I would imagine over the years you've gotten to travel to different places or, or maybe, maybe not, but uh, what's the role of, you know, like if you go to, you know, Rome and you're looking at, or, or, you know, Lisbon and Mm -hmm. you're looking at that architecture and things like that, does that come into the fold or are you just experiencing that from a distance and being like, well, that's amazing. But, you
1: know, well, sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, I, 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 the older I get, the more the more wider my interest in looking at all of these things are. Um, I, you know, when I was younger, I had a lot of biases about what it was I was interested in seeing. Um, it was, you know, I did a piece. Uh, uh, gosh, it's been, it's been at least ten years now, but I did a piece uh, for actually for Bloomberg's uh, philanthropic, philanthropic offices in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And they're in an old McKim, Mead and white mansion on the Upper East Side. And the exterior of the building is completely intact, but the interiors were long gone. And so they were completely redone. But I did a piece that was based on what those interiors, that would have resonated with the original interiors. Yeah. So it's super decorative and much more kind of curly cue than something I would have done. And so, you know, I wasn't, you know, um, the consultant I was working with was Nancy Rosen, who I've worked with before, and she knew that I was interested in exploring these other ideas. So it wasn't somebody who didn't think that I was capable of making that kind of transition from what they think I do. Yeah, and so I've been, you know, wanting more and more of those types of opportunities.
0: So. Yeah, and you know, I was thinking about it too. That that kind of like, Usonian you know, modern, sort of like clean, I mean, a lot of that, the aesthetics of that stuff was heavily influenced by, you know, Eastern architecture and philosophy of aesthetics, and I don't know if you've ever read In Praise of Shadows, but, you know, there's um, this idea in the East that, you know, of noticing the quiet things or the unnoticed and you know, I think there's a lot of stuff there that resonates, but I don't know if you've been able to travel to the Far East and if that's been something that you've mined or um, visually been influenced by.
1: I have not. I would love to go. Um, I, I almost literally have only gone places that I've done exhibitions. Yeah. Um, when Isn't it I funny? was younger, traveling yeah, through
0: shows,
2: <laughs> it happens. It's
1: crazy. I mean, one summer though, I was in Europe for three weeks, and we rented a car and drove to these three different projects I was involved in and looked at architecture and art along the way. And it was amazing. So, but I haven't had that chance in a while. So.
0: Yeah. I think you would love Japan, just the aesthetics of it. And there's, there's a similarity. I mean, plus the patterns and the way, you know like design is uh integrated into daily life whether it's the ceramics or the sidewalk the pattern on the sidewalk or things like that it's mm-hmm. just you know it's amazing like shoji and all that yeah.
1: yeah yeah no i i mean i i absolutely love that idea of art being integrated into everyday life and you know so it's just part of your experience and not this separate thing
0: yeah because in the in the west it's a very you know it's the high low it's that whole and and your work is playing on that you know what i mean is that a rocky and a bullwinkle cup
1: this is this is the rocky version sorry
0: that threw me off. i haven't thought about rocky and bullwinkle in a while i have
1: the bullwinkle the bullwinkle's in the closet so. uh,
0: and peabody right mr peabody was the dog mr peabody was, and sherman ex- yeah extremely intelligent Well ah, yeah that oh my god okay sorry where was i <laughs> there we um oh, oh i was talking about uh here it's the whole high and low and your work engages in that kind of like play between the tension between something that's just design oriented or you know a work of art and then how you interpret yeah. it and the context and makes you think about these things differently whereas in you know in eastern culture like i'm more familiar with japan it's like you know, there's less of a, a discrepancy between the the art and the the art of the things that you're using for day to day things yeah. and, and high art, quote unquote.
1: You know. Yeah. No, I've I've done a number of design projects over the years too, but trying to make you know very usable objects. Like, um, I worked with this guy, uh, Braden Weeks Earp, who has this. Now he he's running. He and his partner have this business called Open Editions. And they do open editions of artworks and but before that we did a project at the workshop residence where we made a utility blanket and we made a giant you know it's the scale of what you would buy at home depot and you know i was printed both sides it was super industrial and i absolutely loved doing things like that that then you know you you use everyone well all my friends have one in the back of their, you know, pickup or station wagon and they use it every day. And yeah. um I use them with my dogs all the time. So it's fantastic. And so I, I want to do more things like that. I just designed a modular bookcase for my boyfriend that stacks up and you can make it as tall as you want. And I did it you know, it was very funny. I teach this class that's about the sculptural object in relationship to furniture, architecture, and decoration. And because I was teaching the class for the very last time, I did the assignment along with my class. And this was my solution to the assignment. Nice. So, But it turned out so well that I would really like to figure out a way to license it or market it, because I think it's, it's very, very simple and could have a lot of applications. Yeah.
0: You know, it's funny because we've been... Um, in japan there's there's such a there's not a lot of space so they get so creative about the way they can create modular things that you know expand space and utilize every square inch and stuff and it's kind of a Mm a beautiful um there's beautiful solutions to you know these problems that are so inventive you know yeah but were you just there um what's that
1: were you just in japan
0: no every i'm gonna time. well i'll be there we're we're going for a few weeks coming up and it'll be the first time since covid because they were on a pretty hard lockdown but usually every right. year we go before my family before oh, uh, COVID. Wow. Okay. so um but yeah it's it's been a little while thanks to right. you know the whole lockdown thing but yeah we're going back i'm excited it's been too nice. long yeah but yeah heavily influenced by ukiyo-e and you know just that that the whole thing you know it's kind of amazing um so how about these days what are you working on i mean obviously you're you're is this the the sketching idea generator cabin bunker
1: well it is but i started some new work right before i came up here so i want to i'm working on a new set of paintings and i'm also in this uh more of an administrative design phase for this show i'm going to be doing next summer so I don't know if you're familiar with there there used to be a Mocha satellite at the PDC in LA. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, oh, no. I don't know. I've admittedly very... not
0: been to LA that much, sadly.
1: Okay. Well, it's an odd space and um, I mean they've done some really amazing shows there, but it's a you know, it's I mean now that there's lots of galleries in West Hollywood again, it's not far from everything. But it's a standalone building. You know, the PDC is those big glass buildings. There's a blue one and a green one and a red one. Mm-hmm. But next to them is this kind of concrete box. And it's, a, it's two stories, but they're really beautiful uh, square spaces. And Mocha gave it up a few years ago. So the PDC has been, you know, turning it over to different artists to do projects there. And I've been talking to them for five years, and this show, you know, got, everything got delayed because of COVID, but it's probably going to happen next summer, and it's going to be a survey of all the vinyl, dis- all the vinyl wall works I've done, and then a survey of paintings on top of the vinyl wallpaper. Nice. So um, I'm super excited about it, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deep in making all that happen right now, and. Uh, fingers crossed, Miles is going to be, um, be a, a big... I mean, he's been incredibly uh, supportive of doing this. Yeah. So it should be fun. That's
0: great. And yeah, let's talk a little bit about the show up now. So, um, I mean, you mentioned the unconventional size. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> but there's a real rhythmic element. You know, it's funny because, I, I mean, I have this disease where I can't look at art and not think, like or visual things and not hear music to it. and. <laughs> Okay, and and, what did you hear? Well, I was going to ask you that before I jumped in. <laughs> if you could associate a as sort of... I mean, and you can maybe describe if, if people haven't seen the show what the work is kind of like.
1: Yeah, this the show, this was this... I mean, all the work in the show is from 2013 to 15. So um, it's unusual for me to show a body of work this long after I made them. Mm-hmm. But some of them were never shown and a couple of them were shown in LA. But... Um We had bought a cNC router for the sculpture lab at school, and i was I was trying to figure out what I could do with it and one of the ideas I had up had I came up with because i previously I had done a couple series of paintings where every painting was the same pattern, but the way the color was assigned made them look like completely different paintings and so the first six of these were uh they're actually 48 by 40, what are they? 48 by 52 and a half inch MDF panels that all six paintings have the same line cut into it, which is a series of parallelograms that create a hexagon. Mm-hmm. And um, it's only the way that they're painted make them look different, look like different paintings. And, when you see them in, in reproduction, it's really hard to even see that line that's cut into the surface. Yeah. Um, so the line cuts all these parallelograms, and then some of the parallelograms are divided within each painting. They're either a painting of parallelograms that are divided vertically, horizontally, or diagonally. And when you do that, they create three very different illusions of a painting, and then deciding. On, the con- based on where you assign the four different colors that are used that changes the painting as well. And there was this kind of complication, I mean, MDF is uh, very susceptible to moisture and warping. And so they had to have these uh, steel frames made for them so that they don't warp. And so all 10 paintings have the same uh, really beautiful welded steel frame and they all have this line cut and then they're, you know, not sloppily but very roughly painted so that the paint just you know flows down into this you know gully between each shape and so it was this kind of pragmatic thing where i didn't want to have to you know draw each one of these things i wanted to have the the computer controlled router cut the lines for me Mm -hmm. and you know i wanted to see you know how you know what i could do with that and um these are. It took me, I think, three years to make these ten paintings, and I'm really happy to have all of them shown together for the first time. Yeah, that's so.
0: really um, compelling. The the sort of, you know, your perception from a distance of the images, and then what you see up front, like when you get right up to it. And to me, yeah. as soon as I saw the hand in there, those drips into the channels and stuff, it became about you know, chaos and control or balance and like, you know, random, mm-hmm. you know, something that's man-made and something that's, you know, machine-made. So it's this dynamic between those two things that I think plays out in, in a way that reverberates with the play of colors because, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's such a, a sort of dynamic between those colors that are going on that I, I think it, it it was really sort of layered in a really nice way
1: thank you these these are i mean for 40 years i was using house paint to do paintings and these are the last ones i've made after doing these paintings i finally gave in and started working with artist paint because i've had so many you know uh you know preservation issues oh, with yeah. them but these so these are in really great shape and they're a very expensive european uh house paint that I started using it initially because they had a deal with the Pantone chip operation where you could order by chip color, so you could get any color in the world. But that licensing ended, and these were the paintings I made after that. And so I used their chip book for standard British sign paint. And so um, I really love how the saturated primary colors that I used on all the paintings. Yeah. So, yeah, But it it's, work. you know... Yeah. Thank you. Um, But there was, you know, I, 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 I like the, you know, the kind of confusion about what it is you're looking at. And then when, you know, so many people think that they're, they're tiles, you know, they don't understand that it's one monumental surface that just has that line cut into it. So, um, yeah. And with all my work there, it all reproduces as much more perfect than it is in person. Everything I've done uh, because I work with these, very saturated colors with which are often more translucent you know each each color must have at least 10 coats of paint and you see every brush stroke that's applied that paint yeah so there really is a really beautiful i think a very beautiful surface to them
0: um two things one is the music that i heard in my mind was um it was uh there's a it was an electronic musician, or two guys, I think, from, I don't know, in the late 90s, 2000s, SND mm-hmm. is the name. It's, I don't know how you okay. pronounce it, Send or something. But uh, it's mm-hmm. minimal electronic stuff that's rhythmic, that kind of loops and tweaks in a way. That's where my, right. my brain went to the audio. And um, wow. the other thing is, like, the... Yeah, it's so interesting that idea of like showing something you said these were done in around 2013 to 15. Yeah. I mean, did it feel, did you feel a little disconnected from those or did you, or it was just, you know what I mean? Like sometimes when you step away after a little while, you it's, it's nice in a way you could see it differently. So the show runs till how, when does the show close? july 22nd july 22nd so people will have time to go check it out oh uh i don't want to forget to to mention and i didn't have a lot of time at the opening but i did notice you have a beautiful like this big book so right is that available through the gallery
1: it's available through the gallery or if you're not in new york it's available through radius books i mean you can buy it on amazon but if you there's it's available with three different colors for the cover three different covers actually. And if you buy it at radius or at the gallery, you can pick which cover you want. If you buy it on Amazon, you're just going to get one of them, but it's, it's 40 years of my work. Um, It's kind of an amazing, you know, it's something I've always wanted. We started, we actually agreed to do it right before lockdown. And so that's what I did during the first year and a half of the pandemic was put that book together. And I could not be happier with how it turned oh, it's out. That's
0: really nice. It must feel good because I I will say this. I don't have many um, goals with art. You know, I just mm-hmm. like to make stuff and show it and yeah. people like it or whatever. But I do think it would be cool at some point to have, like, you know a book that shows from like the early days to now just because to see it all must be nice you know
1: oh and to have i mean so many people know one or two things i've done have done and you know a lot of people are confused because i've worked in so many different materials yeah so to have this progression and um it's really funny the book is in four sections there's a essay by christopher knight there's the plates there's a really strict chronology and then there's an interview with me and the plates and the chronology are super strict in terms of being in chronological order, but the both the essay and the interview just swerved wildly back and forth throughout my career. Nice. So basically, everything's talked about in four different or presented in four different ways. And so if you make it through the whole thing, I, I you know, just about everything I w- would want you to know about my work and why I do it is in there. Linear. So, yeah. It's, feels incredible to have
0: that existing in the world I've kept you a long time but everyone should go see your show at Miles McKenry Gallery up until July 22nd you have the book out which is amazing and people should get that as well and you have apparently a robust collection of glass glassware that has cartoon characters on it from the 1960s <laughs> and 70s <laughs> I
1: the only the, I listen when I I, the only ones I have left are my Rocky and Bowwinkle glasses. glasses. So. You didn't
0: have the walrus? Wasn't there a walrus on that too? Uh, not,
1: well...
0: Who's the walrus? Is There's a walrus with a top hat in one of those cartoons.
1: Yeah, I don't know. If, maybe oh, maybe that's the Dexter
0: one. There's, yeah, I can't keep it all... Those cartoons were so big in my life, like Bugs Bunny and all that stuff. I mean, yeah. and talk about, you know, um, what's his name? Um, uh, the Animator... <laughs> he was so influential to a lot of i mean oh yeah oh i can't think of his name oh chuck yeah, chuck something
1: yeah Chuck Jones. chuck
0: jones yeah yeah I, may, I mean i grew up on that stuff it informed my my visual eye you know it's funny yeah yeah um That's fine. well thanks a lot it was great to talk
1: yeah this was great thanks brian
0: just that.